Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the first passage that we read in the prophecy of Isaiah. We come in this series of sermons after having slowed down a bit uh, to consider verses 6 and 7 of chapter 9. Now we resume our exposition at verse 8. So Isaiah 9, and we'll be considering together from verse 8 through the opening of chapter 10, uh, verse 4. Isaiah 9, verse 8 says, The Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. We can look out over the across the surface of the world, or for that matter, perhaps even more readily through uh, over the surface of history, and we see innumerable examples of institutions that go bust, that collapse, that fall apart. And we see it at the empire level. We see great empires rise up, and then oftentimes slowly, sometimes quickly, uh, they come to an abrupt and catastrophic end. We see the same thing with businesses and great uh, commercial enterprises. You think of the um, East India Company and other things like that, or you, you think of great families that had endured for multiple generations, influential and so on, which end up crashing and coming to nothing. We also think of churches and of the church in various places and ages and the ways in which uh, devastation has been brought into, into its own wake. And so there's, there's all these instances. But what is particularly interesting to me, as I'm sure it is to some of you, is to reflect upon the seeds of disintegration. This is one of the more intriguing questions. So it's easy. It sits on the surface. Everybody sees when nations and institutions crash, fall. But the question is, where were the seeds of disintegration? So early on in, in the life of an institution, a family, a church, a company, a nation, or whatever, there are seeds that are sown. And they go unnoticed by most at the time, but they end up being what germinates and eventually springs up, grows, spreads, and ultimately strangles the institution. They give way, ultimately, those seeds of disintegration to its ultimate collapse and fall. And so it's, it's intriguing to present, but especially the past, uh, reflect, investigate, study, think, trace uh, back to those initial seeds of of disintegration. And so we, we come here in Isaiah, and we've been working our way through the opening chapters of this book. Israel has been in dire straits. Judah is now also coming into dire straits. The Lord has placed them in his crosshairs. For Israel, a great fall comes in 722, and they're taken away into captivity by Assyria, never to return. Uh, the same happens later on in the 580s to, uh, to Judah. And so here, you, you, you know, you begin to think, and it's, it's actually much easier in the Bible than in 
uh, uninspired history, you think about where were the seeds of disintegration. And, and they're actually pointed out to us if we're looking for them. So the Bible supplies them. The Lord sends his prophets early to his people, and he begins to point out and expose, expose what's wrong, to rebuke them, to call them to repentance, and so on. And we see that germinating and developing, getting worse and worse and worse until it gets seriously worse. So here is northern Israel in our context of this immediate passage. Northern Israel has rejected the covenant. They've broken the covenant. They've thrown off the promises. They've pursued a course of rebellion and disobedience. They've given themselves to spiritual adultery. Uh, they're wholesale, neck deep in idolatry and worldliness and so on. And there's this track record of, of that rebellion. And so the passage opens, the, the Lord sent a word into Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel. So a word to Judah, and it, it is applied to Israel. And it is, of course, Jehovah who's speaking. It is the Lord himself who is declaring his word. This isn't conjecture. This isn't, this isn't the kind of thing we do when we reflect and think and study and and so on, and try to think about what's gone wrong and why. No, this is Jehovah, and he's coming to declare openly uh, the, the state of his people, their sins, and their refusal to, to turn to him. And there are, as you can readily see, there are four sections here in the portion that we're considering. Each of them ends with the same words. In verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So we have that repeated at the end of each of these four sections. Speaking of God, for all his, that is Jehovah's anger, is not turned away, but Jehovah's hand is stretched out still. So we're going to consider each of these four sections uh, this afternoon. First of all, we have the sin of pride. So here is one of those seeds, one of those seeds of disintegration. The Lord actually warned them of this long before the seed was planted. Right? He told them in the days of Moses that they're going to eventually come into the promised land. And he said, the snare that you must watch for, right? This is Deuteronomy 7 and 8, as you well know. He says, the snare that you must watch for is pride. You're going to look at everything and you're going to say, all this our hands have gotten for us. Your pride is going to swell. You're going to forget God and then you're going to depart from him. Right? So the Lord's told them this, what, you know, many, many years before, decades before they even get there. And then, of course, he comes behind it and he continues to warn them almost immediately about it. So that's now we're at the end of the, the line, as it were. We're now at the point in this redemptive history where that pride has, has spread like crazy. And so it says in verse uh, 9, And all the people shall know that uh, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say in the pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin, against him and join his enemies together, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, and they shall devour Israel with open mouth, 
For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. So you can see clearly that it is the sin of pride that the Lord is bringing. So you have Assyria comes, there's the invasion, and Samaria is now um, in a position where their downfall is is imminent. And it's it's the Lord. Of course, we have enemies that the Lord has employed, but it is the Lord himself. So when you think, you know, the enemy comes in and knocks down the walls and the bricks are made a pile of rubble. You can think of the instruments, the battling rams and all that would have been used to accomplish that. But in fact, it is the Lord. The Lord is knocking the bricks to bits. He's the one who's actually accomplishing all of this. This is God's own judgment. But their pride is particularly manifest in this. They think they can fix it. And so it says in the, in the, in the passage, basically they're saying, we'll undo it. In fact, we'll redo it and we'll outdo it. You've knocked the bricks down but we're going to do something better. They laugh it off. And so they're, they're actually thinking, not only can they fix it or undo it, they're going to outdo what they had before. They're saying, yeah, before we had bricks, now we're going to build with hewn stones. Right? They're saying, in other words, we're going to make it even better than it ever was. These are the you know, expensive, elaborate materials. Hewn stones are the stuff that in kings and elsewhere, we're told the palaces are made of, right? These are the materials of the highest order. And so their pride is in two things. One, thinking that they can reverse and undo the judgment and chastening God's brought upon them. And secondly, that they're going to actually improve their situation and they're going to be better than ever as, as a result of this. Right? This is the fruit of pride. This is where pride leads. This is where pride goes. This is what it looks like. This is how it manifests itself. There's no repentance, right? The Lord comes and he smashes their walls down. And the, the correct response would have been to say, we've sinned against the Lord. Humble ourselves low, low, low. Get down into the dirt before the Lord. Own our sins. Confess our sins. Turn from our sins unto the Lord. Cry out to him for mercy. Run in his ways. Seek to glorify him. And so on and so forth. That under the pressure of the Syrian, of Syria from one side and the Philistines from the other, as the passage says, as they're being squeezed, that it would actually push them, squeeze them in the direction of running to Jehovah, of running to the Lord, their Savior, their, the one who can deliver them, and so on. But they're not humbled. The Lord has brought humbling circumstances, but their hearts aren't humbled, right? It's like I've said before, and this comes from uh, Thomas Boston's Crook in the Lot. Your circumstances can be brought down without your heart ever being brought down to the level of your circumstances. To be humiliated is not the same as to be humbled. And so we need to get our hearts down to where the Lord has placed us in our circumstances. That's not happening here. And the result is hypocrisy. The result is hypocrisy. They're saying we're going to, 
you know, our sycamores have been whacked down. That's fine. We're going to plant cedars, even more valuable things. And there's open, flagrant hypocrisy in all of this. So here's, here's, here's what we see, the sin of pride. This, this manifests itself in individuals, in families, in communities, in corporations, in businesses, in churches, in nations. This is not limited to this very particular historic context. It's a, a particular historic instance of what is a universal problem. And so we need to be aware of it. Nations suffer judgments. Contemporary nations suffer judgments. How do they respond to that? When these United States of America have had a shot across our bow, when we have suffered various degrees of divinely and providentially ordered judgments, has the result been humility and repentance, or has it been bravado and pride and will make it bigger and better and unbeatable than it ever was? Right? That's a relevant question for us. It's the same all the way down to the individual level. Right? You can have an individual whom the Lord is disciplining. An individual whom the Lord is chastening. And that chastening is being brought into their life. And instead of being humbled by it, instead of being led to repentance through it, instead of looking to the Lord in it, pride manifests itself. A refusal to acknowledge the Lord's hand in what he's doing. A refusal instead will be better than ever before. Right? These are very dangerous signs of being unchecked in the Lord's dealings with us. It's equivalent to saying, well, the bricks have fallen down, but we'll build with hewn stones. The consequence is this. God says, for all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. He's not done. His anger has not been turned away, and his hand of judgment is still stretched out. So we have pride. Secondly, the refusal to repent. So this is now the second step, right? This this, this pride, which we begin with, gives way and is more fully developed in this next section in terms of a refusal to repent. Pride leads to a, a refusal to actually repent. You know that repentance and confession are related but distinguished. Uh, we hear this very lot, uh, we, uh, very often. You know, people say, I've repented. When what they mean is, I confessed my sin. I acknowledged my sin. I, I uh, acknowledge that my sin is sin, and so on and so forth. That's not the same as repentance, to actually turn from sin to God in hope of mercy. 
with the fruit that comes from godly sorrow for sin, the fruit of, of repentance. So here in verse 13, this is um, the second point is verses 13 to 17, the refusal to repent. For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. So we have now made even more explicit. It's the Lord that's smiting. And there's a refusal to turn to him. There's a refusal to seek him. The language in Old Testament scripture, the word, the word return or the word turn is an Old Testament word for repentance. It's used as, as a word for repentance in the Old Testament. He's saying, they turneth not to me. They, they, they won't seek the Lord of hosts. Now, that, that presupposes something, doesn't it? To say, to turn or return to the Lord presupposes leaving the Lord, departing from the Lord. So rather than, than pursuing the Lord, heading in the direction of the Lord, walking in the ways of the Lord, there has been a turning from God, a turning from his ways. There's been disobedience. There's been infraction and transgression of the law and word of God. There is distance now between the people and the Lord, which requires them to turn. But we're told they're not seeking him while he may be found. They won't seek him. They won't pursue after him. They should be concerned first and foremost about God himself. Forget all the other stuff. Forget the particular circumstances that they're facing or that you are facing. Forget how you feature in the picture and story of all that's unfolding. The biggest concern is Jehovah, the Lord of hosts. That's the biggest concern is him honoring him, pleasing him, turning to him, bowing before him, glorifying him, obeying him. But that's precisely what's not in view. There's a refusal to repent. Verse 16, we're told the leadership of church and state caused the people to err. The leaders of this people caused them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Leadership causing them to err. There's something in this, isn't there? Leaders have responsibility. Leaders have power. Leaders have culpability as well. We're told the leaders caused them to err. There's an influence. The, the, the man of the house, whether he likes it or not, has a far-reaching influence on the whole household. It's true as well. The leadership session of a congregation, huge influence on the congregation, like it or not, visible, invisible. Same thing could be said for you know, leaders of companies. Same thing is said, of course, for nations as well. The leaders of a nation reflect the populace. And that works both directions. That's who the people, in essence, are in many, in many ways. And so isn't it interesting that the Lord, when he comes to deal, often deal with his people, he comes in this way. He comes to the man of the house, the head of the house. 
I mean, you, you see that over and over in the Old Testament and judgments and discipline that's brought upon various parties. You see it in reference to the church. Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord brings his word to the angel of those churches, which chapter 1 makes clear are the ministers. Right? He's bringing his word to them. When the Lord comes to deal with both Gentile and Jewish and the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, how often does he address the leader, the emperor, the king, whoever, of the nation? And so there's, there's something there. There's culpability because of the power and responsibility that comes as a consequence of this. But it's, it's, not, it's not left there, of course, because it goes on to say, um, and they that are led of them are destroyed. So here's, here's the influence that happens on those who are, are led. But the people are also culpable. You remember, perhaps in a parallel passage in, in Jeremiah 5, we're told in verse 31, well, verse 30, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. Verse 31, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means, and my people love to have it so. And what will you do in the end? thereof. So there's culpability for children in the house, employees, church members, citizens of, of a nation, and so on and so forth. There's culpability there because, you know, there are, Paul warns about those who have itching ears and who seek out for them teachers and those who, who love to hear, you know, the, the false, uh, the, the sweet sounds of false teaching. And of course, the, pro the false prophets are condemned for this sort of thing as well, which is fueled, encouraged, desired, cultivated by the people. So we're recognizing that this river flows in, in two directions. But the Lord says in verses 14 and 15, this refusal to repent means that he's going to cut off the head and the tail. He says, therefore, the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, branch and rush in one day. Ancient and honorable is the head, prophet is the is the one who teacheth lies. He's the tail. The Lord is going to destroy both. He's going to sever them. He's going to remove them. They won't return or repent, so he will ultimately remove them. Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 15 and verse 14, let them alone they be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into a ditch. Same principle. Notice that the Lord is so provoked by the refusal to repent that there's no expression of pity. Right? He says that the, the young men will not have joy. He says that the fatherless and widows, who are a particular um, group that often the Lord um, takes under wing, he says they will not have mercy either. And in all of this, he's still not done. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Thirdly, there is the spread of self-destruction. Thirdly, there's the spread of self-destruction, verses 18 
to 21. So this pride leads to a refusal to truly repent. And that refusal to truly repent leads to the spread of self-destruction. For wickedness burneth as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns, and it shall kindle in the thickets of the forest, and they shall mount up like the lifting up of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. He shall snatch in the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat in the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. Right? This picture of fire, you could also picture it as a disease that's left untreated, unchecked, and it begins to spread. But the image here is even more graphic. It's the picture of fire, right? We're thinking, uh, the thought is the, the picture of wildfire. You know, you, you've seen it sometimes perhaps on the news, especially in the West Coast. They have these, you know, wildfires and a fire starts and it's, 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 it's hard to even get your mind wrapped around the miles and miles and miles and miles and miles of acres that are engulfed in the flames. And with that breeze blowing and no rain, how quickly it just will at great speed just cross over an entire forest, lighting it upon fire. This is the picture. Sin is spreading. Sin is engulfing everything. Their wickedness burneth as the fire, devouring everything, the briars and thorns, the thickets of the forest, and so on. There's the spread of self-destruction. He says in verse 19, the people are their own fuel. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened, and the people shall be as the fuel of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. We have reinforced for us the, the, the thing that we saw early on in Isaiah, and that is that sin is its own punishment. Sin is its own punishment. Think of the first chapter at the end. And the strong shall be as the toe, and the maker of it as the spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. You may recall what all that that entails. Sin is its own punishment. How does the Lord judge people? In part, by giving them over to themselves, cutting loose the restraints allowing them, giving them free reign, as it were, so that sin is heaped upon sin and wrath heaped upon wrath for the day of wrath. Sin is its own punishment. We get the same thing in the New Testament. James 1 is an example. They are, those described here, are their own worst enemy. And as a consequence, they turn on each other, unwilling to turn to the Lord, unwilling to be humbled, unwilling to repent, they turn to devour one another. And so what, what's described is disunity. What's described is the, the breaking up and breaking apart of God's, God's people. No surprise, Proverbs tells us, doesn't it, that, the, the, that, that cast out the haughty spirit and contention will cease. That contention is brewed by the presence of pride. 
coupled with an unwillingness to be humbled and, and repenting from it. And so they begin to devour one another. And in verse 21, there's complete confusion, right? They're fighting each other, Manasseh, Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh against Judah. The whole thing is in, is in confusion. This is, a this is a consequence of sin. It's also a tactic of the devil, right? The devil loves to come and he'll seize upon those who are proud and who are not humbled under their sin and use them as the thin end of the wedge or to stick with the metaphor of this passage, the spark, the match, the flame in order to create chaos, in order to incite division, in order to, to bring about confusion and disunity and so on. And it's in a wicked, in a perverse way, a brilliant tactic. You know, what's better than bringing, think in terms of war, what's better than bringing a whole bunch of troops um, and using them against the person you're trying to attack? What's better than that is to get the people you're trying to attack to divide and kill each other so that you don't have to use any troops right? They're defeating themselves by, by themselves. This is, this is the tactic that, that's being described. They're killing each other. They're, you know, there's even cannibalistic language, man. Every man eating the flesh of his own arm. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to, to, to hurt one another, and it's, it amounts to nothing, right? You're, you're, they're stealing and hurting each other, and they come up empty, does it accomplish what they hoped? No. Does it fulfill what they thought it would achieve? No. They snatch on the right hand and they're hungry. They, you know, they, they eat on the other hand and they're not satisfied. So it's complete confusion. And so here you have it. The, the, this, this pride which gives way to a refusal to repent ends up spreading self-destruction. Individuals destroy themselves through their own sins and is their own punishment. They're their own worst enemy. But it's true of families and churches and nations as well. This is the pattern that the Lord is, is giving to us. And so you think in terms of God's people, you think of the church, parallel to what's being described here. The kingdom is weakened by this. Seriously weakened. And the devil knows that. There, there, it results in what appears to be Retreat, not advance. That when the Lord's people are, because of pride and a lack of repentance and sin spreading, unchecked, disunity, schism, separation, all of which are scandalous sins in the eyes of the Lord. These sins wreak havoc. And we can see it in every era. I mean, you go back to the patristic era, the early church, and... You can read about it in, in very vivid color, some of the ways in which this found expression. You come to fast forward to the days of the Reformation, if you're more familiar with that. During the days of the Reformation, read, read Knox's history of the Reformation in Scotland. You know, read about what was happening in Geneva under, under Calvin or anywhere else you want to point. And you see these same sorts of patterns where there's the threat of schism and disunity and all that comes as a consequence of that, right? It's a way of retarding the Reformation. Same thing when you go to the Second Reformation. I mean, in our own history, a very 
unsavory example would be the 1650s in Scotland. Right after the high ebb of 38 to 48, the Second Reformation, all the achievements and wonder that was taking place in that time, the preaching and revivals and so on and so forth, and then boom, you get massive division. Now, I'm not saying that some of these things aren't without cause. There's sin that creates the, the divisions. But those divisions result in, in seriously harming the advance of the cause of Jesus Christ, weakening the kingdom. And that's what's being described here. It can happen, of course, at the local congregation as well. And in many other instances, families where this is seen. So the spread of self-destruction. But we're not done. Because in verse 21 it says, For all this... His anger is not turned away, but his hand is, is stretched out still. Fourthly, we have unjust laws. Chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Injustice and unjust laws. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment and take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation and in the desolation which shall come from, a, from far? To whom will ye flee for help? And where will ye leave your glory? And so on. Here we have now full-scale, corporate, legalized lawlessness. And it's being applied in this case to government. In this case, it's being applied to civil government, decrees that are unrighteous, laws that are being um, enacted. This is legalized lawlessness by governments. Some of you will recall a sermon from quite a, long, quite a while ago on national sins. There are two types of national sins. The first one is the one that most everybody thinks about. And that is when a sin or a, a number of sins become pervasive throughout the populace, throughout the population of the country. So we think, well, national sins are sins that are seen everywhere. Everybody's doing them. They're characteristic of the society as a whole. They're frequently... Uh, engaged in and so on. And that's true. That's a, that's a biblical uh, way of, of thinking about, about corporate national sin. So, you know, Paul says, all Cretans are liars. So he's saying, yeah, Crete as a whole are given over to the sin of lying. That's characteristic of their country. So that's appropriate. But there's a second way of a, a second type of national sin. And this one is far worse than the first one. And that is when sins are actually codified and enshrined in the laws of the nation. So that the laws, it's not just the people are practicing sin, but there's an official, overt, flagrant, formal ratification of those sins in the law of the land. 
We sing about it in Psalm 94, verse 10. He that the nations doth correct, shall he not chastise you? He knowledge unto man doth teach, and shall, uh, and shall himself know. Sorry, I'm giving you the wrong verse here. Um, I had it, and I've lost it. Here it is. It's uh, verse 20. Shall of iniquity the throne have fellowship with thee? So shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with Jehovah? Which mischief cunningly contrived doth by a law decree? Right, so it's talking about sinful laws themselves. And this is, of course, a more flagrant form of, of, of national sin. That's what's being described here in Isaiah 10. Right? Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievousness, which they have prescribed. Iniquitous laws, laws that protect and promote what God forbids. Iniquitous laws are the opposite of God's law. God's moral law is the standard for everybody, everywhere, at all times, and in all circumstances, including all nations. It is the standard for nations, God's moral law. Iniquitous laws are set over against that. And so what is the consequence in verse 2? We know that the government is given, that the legal system there, is, as Romans 13 tells us, is in order to reward the good and punish the evildoers. So when God's law is upheld and, and Christ's crown rights are honored and so on, then the law-abiding people benefit in, 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 in all sorts of ways, temporally and spiritually. But when that's not the case, you know, and, and of course the wicked in, in that case I just mentioned are punished. Right? So the, the government is carrying out, upholding the law of God to suppress evil, which is a benefit to the law abiding. But when, when iniquitous laws are put in place, we get that inverted. All of that is turned upside down. So the godly end up suffering temporally and spiritually, and the wicked benefit. They, they are rewarded and prosper. And so look at verse 2, and it says, look, here are the needy who should be in a context in which um, they can receive judgment. They're turned aside from getting judgment. He takes away the right, the, the, what the law provides for the poor. The widows are actually made a prey. The fatherless are robbed, blind. Right? This is the consequence. Everything is turned upside down. Now, you can extrapolate and take that same principle, which is here applied to the, the civil government, and we've, you know, I've, I've expounded the, the points that I've just touched on at far greater length than other, other sermons. But it can be also applied to other circumstances, right? To other institutions, really every other institution in which policies and practices and so on are in conflict with the standards of God's law and the reign of Christ as Lord over everything. The result, children in a family suffer, members of a congregation suffer, employees in a company suffer, whatever the case. Right? It's not easy to be able to follow all that through in your mind. 
The Lord says that judgment is coming. He says that they're under judgment now, that further judgment is coming, and that that further judgment is inescapable. And what's more, they're completely unprepared for it. Without me, they shall bow down under the prisoners. They shall fall down under the slain. Completely unprepared. And so the telling question that you get at the end of this in verse 3 is very searching. It's a question that should be asked to our country. It's a question that should be asked to many other circumstances as well as individual people. And what will ye do in the day of visitation when that judgment comes? And in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help? And where will ye leave your glory? This can be applied to the individual, the person who in their pride refuses to repent, whose sin spreads in a self-destructive way. That person, every sinner outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be brought under the final judgment of the great King and judge of all the earth. And having resisted him and ignored him, and rebelled against him, and refused to, to submit to him, and so on. The question comes to you, what will ye do in that day, the last day of visitation, in the desolation that shall come from the Lord? Who are you going to flee to for help? None will be there to help you. Moms, dads, brothers, sisters, friends, all the military of all the greatest nations and all of the history of the world would be of no help to you. Where are you going to go for help? And where will you leave your glory? All of that supposed glory is going to be laid in the dust before the all-seeing gaze of the God of glory. God consciousness, the fear of the Lord, an awareness of his eye, a sense of his presence. All of this is being reinforced in this passage. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out. So you say, well, what? Where does that leave us? You know, where, where is the hope of, of all of this? And the hope is found in what we've been focused on for the last month and a half. Verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And so on. That's our hope. The hope is Christ. The hope is running to Christ. The hope is having Christ. The hope is the deliverance that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. To work back through what we've heard, instead of pride, humility to humble ourselves before him, to recognize our sins, to confess them individually, corporately, nationally, whatever the case, to own our sin for all that God has said it is, to humble ourselves in the dust, and then to turn, to repent, to bring forth the fruit that are meet for repentance, to be running to the Lord and walking in his ways from the heart and in the outward fruit and expression that comes from that. It means coming to him as the one who is life 
rather than sin, which is described here as casting great darkness, verse 19. Rather than sin, which spreads self-destruction, running to him who is the life and the light of the world and who illuminates every one of us. To him who ushers in life and who grants eternal life to all who come to him. With that, the upholding of the justice of God on God's terms, in God's way. Right? This is the hope. The hope is found in Jehovah, who is Jesus, who is the God-man, the incarnate word, the child that's born, the son that's given, the one whose kingdom will know no end. This is where the hope is. So the Lord shuts door after door after door so that we are shut in to nothing else than Christ himself. The Lord gives us some help here in being able to follow the steps from the seeds of disintegration and their outworking in one particular line of thought in this passage. But it leads us, drives us to the need for the Savior. May the Lord help us as we reflect upon these things. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord God of hosts, we come in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is Jehovah of hosts, he who is the child that was born, the son that was given, the only hope of Israel, all of our hope and all of our help. O Lord, deliver us from our pride by divine grace. Give us, O Lord, that we would turn Turn us that we might be turned. Draw us that we might run after thee. Cause, O Lord, repentance to be our bread and butter day by day, all our days. Grant, O Lord, that we would walk in the, the life and light of Jesus Christ. Look with pity upon us. O Lord, we see our own inadequacies, our sins, our shortcomings, all of the failures that are so obvious, but there's also much that we do not see. And we can often not see those seeds of disintegration, reveal them to us through the lens of Scripture, and grant us grace to walk in accord with that word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.